Well, good morning, Brigham Bible Church. It's a, it's a great joy to be with you this morning. We have uh, the new year in front of us, and we have the celebration of the Lord's incarnation uh, right behind us. And we've been just delighting ourselves in the birth of Christ, in song and in stories of his birth for the past month, reading the scriptures and washing ourselves in these hymns and songs. Thanks, Don, for bringing two more again this morning. I really appreciate that. I, I like to keep the uh, Christmas spirit going, too, and we're going to look to do that. Uh, the incarnation is something that we can't exhaust uh, the reflections on and the thoughts about the birth of Christ. We'll continue looking to do that this morning, as you see in your uh, bulletin in, in Luke chapter 2. And yet I only want to do it in this way. There's times, oftentimes, we overlook things in the text. They go flying by really quickly. And I want to recognize righteousness. I want us to look back at this text and see the role of righteous, of the righteous in the birth of the Savior. I hope it brings questions to our minds. What is righteousness? Who are the righteous? And how do you become one of the righteous? Would you stand here on the podium and say, hi, my name is Oliver Jones. I'm righteous, and my deeds are the deeds of righteousness. Anybody else want to join me to say that? Let me say this by beginning. Each year, Time Magazine chooses to recognize men, women, persons of the year. Time Magazine features and profiles a person, a group, or an idea, or an object for that matter, for better or for worse, that has done the most to influence the events of the past year. Since the award's inception in 1927, it's gone to most of the American presidents, in addition to Hitler, in addition to Joseph Stalin twice, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg also received the award. And if the award had been distributed 2019 years ago, we could probably imagine that King Herod would have been on that list for his family planning efforts in Bethlehem. <laughs> Time Magazine has given their award to groups of people as well. The American soldier received the award in the 1950 cover and in 2003 for the efforts in the Korean and the Iraq wars. The American women also, in 1975, received the award for the rise of feminism. The Silence Breakers were announced in 2017. Who were the Silence Breakers, you ask? They were the women of the Me Too movement. And then the Guardians, in a self-congratulatory slap on the back, Time Magazine gave the Guardians the title in 2018. Who are the Guardians? Journalists across the course of the world. So what do you think? Would it be safe to predict that Time Magazine will ever declare the righteous as person of the year? Can you envision, before they go bankrupt and close their doors, that they would ever recognize the righteous? And on whose terms? Who would declare righteous? Time Magazine? I can't believe that they'd ever do this. This, this is not for them. And they'd get it wrong anyway. Even in the aftermath of the rapture, they would get it wrong. It would not be the righteous who make the cover of Times Magazine at that time, but rather the Antichrist who ordered their removal, thereby making great gains in world peace and security. For, I, for now, I just want us to turn in our Bibles and recognize righteousness. Luke 2 is where I want you to go, Luke 2. And I'm going to be looking at verses, or verse 25, but I'm going to read with you all the way through verse 35. This, at this point in time, this text should be familiar with all of us because you've heard this passage more than once in the past month. And as such, the main point of the text is not missing on any of us. God took great lengths to announce the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what the text is all about. Of special interest to us this morning, however, are the details of the life of Simeon. Specifically, that Simeon was righteous. Is that important? What can we learn here? Is this word righteous worth a whole sermon? I believe it's worth a whole sermon series. It seems to me that this word can be so quickly and easily overlooked in the text. And yet I believe it is the perfect time for us to consider righteousness as we launch into the year 2020. My aim will be to give us a vision of righteousness that will equip and challenge you for the new year, for 2020, and for all of life beyond. A proper vision of righteousness will help you answer these three questions. Number one, are you righteous? Number two, what makes you righteous? And number three, do you practice righteousness? You need a vision of righteousness that allows you to answer these questions with certainty and with clarity to the extent that you would join me on the stage and announce to your brothers and sisters, I'm righteous. 
and I practice righteousness. Read the text with me from Luke 2, 25 to 35, and and we will see the declaration of Simeon's righteousness is joined with Simeon's demonstration of righteousness. The text of Luke 2, 25 to 35. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What do we see in this text? As you look back at it, you can see a quick introduction and then a powerful revelation of Jesus Christ from the life of Simeon, a man declared in the text to be righteous. And then we're told in rapid succession from Simeon's righteousness to Simeon's revelation from the Holy Spirit, to Simeon's interaction with the baby Jesus and his parents, snatching the baby up out of his mom's arms. Don't do that, by the way. (laughs) Simeon's exaltation then of God is what follows. And then Simeon's blessing and warning to Jesus' parents. Again, what is the purpose of the narrative? It goes to communicate the great extent that God went to announce Jesus' birth. And yet details matter. Details extremely matter. Just as the details in wedding planning matter to the bride and and her mother. Primarily those details in, in weddings are for the bride and for the groom. That they look, smell, and feel terrific on the wedding day. And that's right and just and good. I I, I know there's a couple of weddings being planned for this year. By all means, make the wedding about the bride and the groom and look, smell, and feel terrific. It's your day. Celebrate. And yet there are secondary considerations. Details that get put into the whole course of the event that shouldn't be overlooked as well. Details that are very intentional. Consider, for instance, the flower girl and the ring bearer. You know, not every child is made to do this job. There are specific qualifications for the flower girl and the ring bearer. Namely, they need to be cute. (laughs) No one really cares how well you drop the flower petals or, or even if the ring bearer gets the rings to the groom on time. What the bride and her mom want, more than anything else, are two kids who are cute as buttons. That's what they want. Simeon's righteousness is a secondary consideration of this text, which has profound implications. And this should immediately put questions into our mind. Did Simeon know that he was righteous? Did he know that he was doing righteousness? How can Luke make this claim about this man? After all, righteous is a term that's frequently used in the scriptures, obviously, to describe the character of God. David says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. Ezra says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. And Jeremiah says, righteous are you, O Lord. How could it be that Simeon is described with the same term used of God? This morning, we are going to recognize righteous by looking into the life of Simeon and seeing Number one, what righteous is. And number two, how righteous works. I'm going to see these two things with you so that you will have a vision of righteousness to treasure and pursue for 2020 and the whole course of the rest of your life. What righteous is and how righteous works. Simeon's life will show us the origin of righteousness and the output of righteousness. We will see that righteous is first a declaration and second, it is a demonstration We are in a gift-giving season, and I would have you understand that righteousness is a precious gift of God. You might liken it to a coin that has both 
immense value and immense beauty. The value of righteousness is its ability to purchase our justification before God. The beauty of righteousness is its ability to fix our eyes on Christ Jesus, our Lord, and sanctify us day by day. Simeon had received righteousness from God and understood both the value and the beauty. So let's look back at that text and consider point number one, what righteous is from the text, Luke 2.25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. As you can see in the text, righteousness is a declaration about Simeon's nature. It is a declaration made about Simeon's nature. And what is one clear indication from the text that his nature has changed? That he's not the same as he was when he was born in sin. Well, right there at the end of verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. So what do you think? When the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you, do you know it? When the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, did she know that? When the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, when the Holy Spirit comes upon David, do they know that? Do you know that? Of course. Why? Because your nature changes. You are transformed in an instant from being guilty, wretched, and condemned to being fully restored and having a perfect relationship with God. In fact, that is what the Greek word dikaios means. Surely it means right, righteous, and upright. And referring to people, it means innocent or pious or just But specifically, Dikaios is speaking of a person in a proper relationship with God. And the only way for that to happen is for God to give his righteousness to you as a free gift. And he does this. This is what God does. Simeon is the third person mentioned in Luke's gospel who is righteous. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 6. Who does Luke describe as righteous in this text? Luke 1, 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Answer, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Later, Luke will write about the burial of Jesus in Luke 23. And we find out in Luke 23, 50, that Joseph of Arimathea was a righteous man also. In fact, you should know that 14 people Minimum in the New Testament are specifically called righteous, including five Old Testament heroes. And what's the significance, you ask? What does it matter that men and women are called righteous in the Bible? Here's what it matters. As believers, we need certainty and assurance. That the promises of God are true. That God is full of integrity, justice, love, truth, and righteousness himself. And that when he says that he will send a Messiah, that he will. And when he says that he will turn the hearts of the people toward him, that he can. That we as the creature, fallen and sinful as we are, are so loved by God that when that we can both know in our minds and feel in our hearts the righteousness of God. That God himself, who is both the owner and the giver of righteousness, has placed his righteousness upon us. Is this a certainty to you? Do you have assurance of your salvation? Do you know if God has brought you into a proper relationship with him? Do you know that? Paul says to the Corinthians, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, follow along. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There's that Greek word again, dikaio. This time in verb form, to justify, to make righteous. 
And you need to know that it's in the aorist passive indicative. Let me just go through this with you. The indicative mood is a statement of fact. You were justified. It's in the passive voice. You are receiving the action. The action is being done on you. And the aorist tense, it's a completed action. It's done. It's history. It's been accomplished. God brings us powerfully into a right relationship with him. He changes our nature to match his own. Consider Paul's nature change described in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 9. Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you know righteousness like Paul does? Do you hold on to that? Do you treasure righteousness? This is the vision of righteousness that I want us to have. But righteousness does have challenges. There are challenges presented to us with righteousness. Do you know what they are? Specifically, do you know what it is? The challenge with righteousness? The challenge with righteousness is this. Fake righteousness. Fake righteousness. The world is full of charlatans, hucksters, quacks, imposters, and pretenders. What industry or product in our society is without a duplicate ripoff inferior twin? I was uh, talking with my boys about this, and we all affirm that signature select cola is not the same as Coke. <laughs> Supercuts is not a barbershop. The same is true of righteousness. It's got a lot of knockoff brands and cheap, phony reproductions. But here's the great news. Here's the great news for us. The Bible shows us both true righteousness as well as fake righteousness. You can read it right off the page of Scripture, and we're going to do some of that. It's important for us to keep in mind that righteousness has two aspects to it, as I've mentioned earlier and will be mentioned later. The declaration of righteousness and the demonstration of righteousness. And get this, fake righteousness attempts to put a demonstration on without having ever received a declaration. I'll say it again. Fake righteousness attempts to put on a demonstration without ever having received a declaration. Let's look at a few places in the Bible where we can see this happening. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 5.32. Luke 5.32. This account is shared by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is gathering his disciples, one of which is Matthew, the tax collector. And Matthew decides to host a party for Jesus and bring his tax collecting buddies along. The self-righteous Pharisees join this party, and they question Jesus and the disciples how they can be eating with such sinners. To which Jesus replies, it is not those who are well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a challenge here. Did Jesus just declare the Pharisees to be righteous? Or do you detect a hint of sarcasm in his words? If not sarcasm, does this mean that Jesus did not come for Simeon, Zacharias, and Elizabeth? Later in Luke 16, 15, Jesus directly clarifies his thoughts on the Pharisees, saying this, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. Justify here is that verb form of the Greek word for righteous, dikaios again, literally saying, You are those who make yourselves righteous. Anybody got a flag going up? Is that a possibility? To declare yourself righteous? Is, is this even possible? Is Jesus stating what is possible or what is being attempted? I hope you see the dichotomy there. Know this. Fake righteousness makes an attempt at the impossible. Fake righteousness makes an attempt at the impossible. At the impossible and it's done daily. This is the kind of crazy that you get 
out of the total depravity of man. Should we expect any different? You know total depravity, that man is born wicked. Romans 3.10 says, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. So let me ask you this. Does man's total depravity slow or accelerate the attempts at fake righteousness? Everyone would say, accelerate. And I believe history has shown this. It only accelerates and even broadens the attempts at fake righteousness. And here is another attempt from Israel's history. And this one comes up in conversations about righteousness as well. I had this one thrown at me the other week, trying to talk with someone in counseling about going down the righteous path, living righteously. And it was said to me, Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Well, here's the question for this particular text. How can truly righteous deeds ever be called filthy garments? They can't. Truly righteous deeds could never be called filthy garments. So what do we know about these, air quotes, righteous deeds? What do we know about them? They were fake righteousness. Israel practiced fake righteousness for hundreds of years, while at the same time they knew the verse right before Isaiah 64, 6. They knew Isaiah 64, 5, which says, You, God, meet with him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. They knew that men could practice righteousness and that God spent time with those men. Fake righteousness presents us with a series of challenges then. I'll just go through and recap these for you. Number one, people have been declaring themselves righteous. Number two, you have people performing fake righteousness. All the while we know that the Bible says, number three, that there are a group of people who are declared righteous. And number four, the righteous are practicing true righteousness and God wants to meet with them and spend time with them. With all of this set of challenges, I can see why for many, righteousness could be confusing. But we want to end confusion. We want a vision for the future, for how we are to do righteousness, to seek God first in his kingdom and his righteousness and allow all the other things of life to be added unto us. So what we need and what I need to give you to handle the challenges of righteousness are two biblical categories of righteousness. Two biblical categories of righteousness. And we'll march through these together as well. Number one, the declaration of righteousness. You need to know this as a biblical category to understand righteousness when you come across it in the text of Scripture and when you see it in life. Number one, the declaration of righteousness. And number two, the demonstration of righteousness. The declaration and the demonstration of righteousness. Let's look at category number one, the declaration of righteousness. Because righteousness is first a declaration made by God. That's what it is first. Again, we're looking at Simeon. The text says, this man was righteous. How are we to understand this? How did this happen? Because you and I know that Simeon was born in unrighteousness, just as you and I were. Let me turn to an unlikely source for us this morning. We're going to go to the Roman Catholic Church. And yet we're going to cast ourselves all the way back to the 11th century And I want to give you the words of Anselm of Canterbury, who was an Italian Benedictine monk. Anselm says this, If sinners are to be accepted in God's sight, it will not be on account of their merits. The debt of sin can only be repaid through the righteous working of another. Though the Son of God owed nothing, He became a man so that he might pay this debt of sin for others who did not have the wherewithal to pay what they owed. Yes, brothers and sisters, there were Calvinists in the Roman system long before Luther and Calvin. Martin Luther called this alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that is ascribed to the unrighteous. Is it merited? No, it's entirely unmerited. And we know that from even verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're connected with Christ, you are righteous. Do you receive that? 
Do you hold that? Do you treasure that? Would you say that to somebody else? I am righteous. And I do the deeds of righteousness. You know, oftentimes we husbands and and never our wives will lose the keys to our car. And the car will sit in the driveway dead. It goes nowhere until the keys are found and brought to the car. There's a creature-creator relationship there. There's one with God as well. He's the one who has to bring the keys to the car he made, my life. And he has to insert the key into my life and turn me on so that I can perform for him the way that I was intended to, the way that brings most joy to my life and obviously then glory to him. So too, Adam and Eve ended our ability to love, obey, and worship God in the garden. Their rebellion combined with knowledge of good and evil sealed us in sin. Only God has the key and he is under no obligation to make anyone righteous before him. It is his long-suffering and patience in which he chooses to save some. But this is what he does. He saves. It is God's great joy to place on rebels his very own righteousness. We are not worthy of this. We are entirely the unworthy. And it is him who places righteousness on us. He declares it to be the case to the extent that we love, worship, and obey him. Consider the words of another Roman Catholic monk, this time from the 12th century, a French abbot named Bernard of Clairvaux. What did Bernard say? For what could man, the slave of sin, fast bound by the devil, do of himself to recover the righteousness which he formerly lost? Answer, nothing. Therefore, he who lacked righteousness had another's imputed to him. This is what we need the imputed righteousness of Christ to be given to us by God as a free gift. This is what you need. You cannot strive and earn righteousness at all. It has to be something that he gives freely of his own will. To understand righteousness, you must know this category of righteousness first. This, again, would be like looking at this coin of righteousness and understanding its value. And the value of this coin of righteousness that God gives is the value of justification in his sight, being declared right, being able to stand in his presence. This is what God does. Righteousness is a declaration of God. It's like the coin that you need to enter into his presence or the ticket that you would need to go to Disneyland or the boarding class for an airplane. You have to have this coin of righteousness given to you. And only God is the one who can give that. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke 2, verse 25. And as you do, I want to wash over you these words from Titus. You're going to Luke 2, and I just want to read Titus to you. Titus says, but when, this is Paul speaking to Titus, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, who he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The righteous are only the righteous after washing and regeneration and renewing in the Holy Spirit. This has to come upon you. You know, if, if I ever get a chance to take any of you camping with me, you'll find this out about me. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a problem with uh, uncleanness. You'll try to get in my boat and I'm going to wash and renew your feet. Because no dirty feet get in the boat. Same way with the tent. Same way with my house. I just got a cleanliness problem. That's just the way it's going to be. And God has the same kind of cleanliness problem when it comes to heaven. Righteousness with God is no different. How many of the stains of your filthy sins will be in heaven? How many? None. Not one stain of sin. And how does that become the case? Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is going to wash you and cleanse you. And then he's going to indwell you. This is the only way for there to be true righteousness. Now look back at Luke 2.25 and let's look at a special set of details in the text. You know, it is often said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So who's hanging around Simeon? 
who is said to be upon him, filling him, revealing things to him from verses 25 to 27. It is none other than the person of the, it's the Holy Spirit. He's all over this guy. Well, isn't that just exactly what God promises for the righteous? We see Simeon's righteousness was declared righteousness. And we see also that it was confirmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit abounding all around his life. And so here's the question for you. Is the Holy Spirit bounding all around every element of your life? Are you listening to him? Are you reading the word of God? Are you righteous? And how did you get righteous? Who made you righteous? Or do you live a life full of striving, trying to please God in all manner of fake righteousness? Brothers and sisters, Simeon was right when he declared, God, My eyes have seen your salvation. If ever you're going to know righteousness, you'll need to stare into the Lord's Messiah's face as well and declare, God, my eyes have seen salvation in Christ alone. You need to know that faith in Jesus Christ alone is salvation. This is a vision of righteousness that you need for 2020, knowing That righteousness is a declaration of God. And knowing that you must stare into his face if you're going to be like Simeon. We need to see then number two in your notes, how righteousness works. How righteousness works. And here we're talking about output, demonstration, deeds. You know, if we looked at what righteousness is, we need to know how it works. Show me righteousness. Show me what it looks like. Stir that up for me. So we're in Luke 2, 25. And I want to read the text again, and we'll launch into a discussion about how righteous works. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Let's first consider this next word that we run across, the word devout. The Greek word here means devout, godly, or God-fearing. It is used only four times in the New Testament. I found that very interesting. And, And even further interesting was immediately after its use in the New Testament, the godly men who are declared to be devout, who are declared to be godly in their actions and their behaviors, are seen doing godly, righteous behaviors, God honoring things, immediately in the text. One of them is is seen burying Stephen. In Acts 8. And another one is seen in Saul's conversion in Acts 9, helping the scales to come off of Saul's eyes. And later this man would become Paul. And what can we see from these four uses of devout? These four uses of devout, they talk about action. They talk about output, works, deeds, even great demonstrations of righteousness. Have you been around the righteous doing righteousness? You know, even when we were having our Christmas party back over here and you guys were stealing presents from one another, there was righteousness going on all over the place. It's just a joy to be in this church. Righteousness is abounding here. I see it in you people all the time. You know, especially coming through this last fall and going through the one another studies with you and letting these things convict your heart about loving one another, serving one another, rejoicing with one another, confessing your sins, bearing one another's burdens. All of this is righteousness. And it's happening around us all the time. And what does righteousness result in? Does it result in your joy increasing and your hope going up? Well, of course it does. Righteousness brings joy, hope, glory to God, love, and it ignites passion in us. When we hear stories of righteousness, when we see demonstrations of righteousness, it stirs us on to more righteousness. That's why you're here in the pews. That's why you're looking at me intently. We're all in this together, and we want to see demonstrations of righteousness. Preacher, get up there and do something righteous. I hope to be doing that for you. And I love to see your smiles and your eyes telling me that you're doing righteousness too. And we're all in here doing this together. And what a joyful place it creates. And it ignites our passions for the Lord and for his work. And J.C. Ryle tells a story of righteousness that was an encouragement to me. I want to give it to you right now. The story is this. There was an English traveler who was walking with a North American Indian convert. The English guy says, man, 
What is the reason that you make so much of Christ and talk about him so much? What has this Christ done for you that you should make so much ado about him? The converted Indian did not answer him in words. He gathered together some dry leaves and moss and made a ring with them on the ground. He picked up a live worm and put it in the middle of the ring. He struck a light and set the moss and the leaves on fire. The flame soon rose and the heat scorched the worm. It writhed in agony. And after trying in vain to escape on every side, it curled itself up in the middle as if about to die in despair. At that moment, the Indian reached forth his hand, took up the worm gently and placed it on his bosom. Stranger, he said to the Englishman, do you see that worm? I was that perishing creature. I was dying in my sins, hopeless, helpless, and on the brink of eternal fire. It was Jesus Christ who put forth the arm of his power. It was Jesus Christ who delivered me with the hand of his grace and plucked me from everlasting burnings. It was Jesus Christ who placed me a poor, sinful worm near the heart of his love. Stranger, that is the reason why I talk of Jesus Christ and make much of him. I am not ashamed of it because I love him. Does it sound like that Indian knew about righteousness? What an incredible export from England, right? One converted Indian, maybe a few others. Is this righteousness? Of course it is. Does it inspire and encourage others on to righteousness? If you're the righteous here today, it just inspired you. I know that stirs your heart. I know that fans the flame of fire of your faith. Let's look back at Simeon in Luke 2. When and how did Simeon do righteousness? When and how? Well, first we see in being devout, the text says, in being devout, being a dedicated glorifier of God, being found to be godly. Second, we see in the text that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. You know, this has to be the case that he read his scriptures, that he knew that the hope was set before Israel, that joy and contentment and peace was coming in a person. And he was looking for the consolation of Israel. What is the consolation of Israel? It is Israel's greatest hope. We just sung about it this morning. Her greatest joy, her biggest accomplishment or trophy. And certainly we all know that that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's consolation. Third, from Simeon, we see that he received and believed the promises of God given to him about the Messiah. When the Holy Spirit came and gave him the revelation, he was paying attention. And he believed it. Fourth, he kept going to the temple to see when God would provide the promise. Fifth, when the, provided, or when the promised Messiah came, Simeon was there. And again, he snatched that baby out of his mother's arms and held on to him and worshiped God. And that's what we see. Sixth, Simeon spared no breath to proclaim the excellencies of God and his son. And then seventh, Simeon blessed and warned Mary and Joseph. And so what do we see from his life? Righteous act. After righteous act, this is what we get from the life of Simeon in these short 11 verses that we meet him. Righteousness after righteousness coming out of him. The declaration of righteousness and then this overpouring of righteous deed after righteous deed. Do you see that in the text? The declaration and then this wild string of demonstration? It's from Simeon that we can then look at Biblical category of righteousness, righteousness number two, the demonstration of righteousness. Let's look at this category, the demonstration of righteousness. Now, my expectation would be that at least one of the high schoolers in here got a drone for Christmas. And, and I would ask you, is your plan with that drone to just leave it in the box and let it sit, save it for safekeeping? Well, no, of course not. And, and which of you dads of young daughters got the Pottery Barn Ultimate Girls Kitchen and we're asked to not set it up, but rather to leave it in the box in the garage. That's not even a possibility. If you got that sweet, precious little kitchen with the refrigerator and the sink, and it's pink, and it's all those wood panels with all the nuts and bolts, you were up till midnight putting that thing together. And once you got it together, then what did you have to do? You had to wrap that thing and put a bow on the front of it. That's righteousness. Your wife will tell you. Why? Because the very nature of the gift demands its use. The very nature of the gift demands its use. And so it is with God who freely gives righteousness to those who believe. 
You need to have this vision of righteousness. The righteous do righteousness. There is a direct correlation. Is it a problem for me to say to you, works are expected of you? Do you realize that if you you don't do the works that God expects of you, that you will continually live with shame, guilt, fear, depression, worry, anxiety, doubt, grief, pain, loss? Do you want to live there? No. The righteous do righteousness, and what fills them? Peace, love, joy, hope, purpose. Don't you want these things? Isn't this a vision to hold on to for 2020? You need to have this as a vision of righteousness. You you need to be ready to perform good works. Ephesians 2.10 declares that God has good works prepared for you from before the foundation of the world that you're supposed to walk in them. Good works are right. Righteous deeds are needed, even demonstrations of righteousness. I just showed you in the life of Simeon a whole string of them. And you know from the efforts and activities of this church, you're seeing them happen all over the place. People want to do righteousness. And even in this American Indian's evangelism, you saw righteousness. Are good works then a burden to the righteous? I'll let that never be said of, of the righteous deeds that we desire to do. They're given by us to our creator who is love in love. The, the, the best of our love pours forward when we give righteousness. The love of God for sending a Messiah. Righteous deeds are the right response of pure devotion to the one who took our sin and gave us his righteousness. The beauty of the coin of righteousness is its ability to fix our eyes on following the Savior and repeating his deeds. This is what we call sanctification. With this understanding of righteousness, let's circle back on the text that were a challenge to us. Let's go to Romans 3 for a second. You remember in Romans 3, there's, there's none righteous, not one. Now, this is very easy to understand with our categories, is it not? None are born righteous. All, all need alien righteousness if they are going to stand In the presence of God. They need God to declare them to be righteous. This is a category one issue. Romans chapter three. Let's move to a category two issue. Let's go to that Isaiah 64, six passage. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. This is a category two issue. And what do we need to ask here of this text again? All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, filthy garments. Are these people declared righteous? These ones that are offering up righteous deeds that become filthy rags. Are they declared righteous? If not, then isn't this exactly what we'd expect of the unrighteous? Because the unrighteous can only ever demonstrate fake righteousness. And what does this look like? What does it look like? I'll just give you a few. And and I really want you to think about what fake righteousness looks like. It's Sunday morning attendance in order to be seen by men. It's a Bible on the dinner table with dust on the cover. Fake righteousness is a wedding ring on your finger symbolizing a marriage that you don't fight for. It's Bethel Church this last week praying for days over the dead body of a two-year-old that she might be bodily resurrected. That's fake righteousness. It's the social justice movement that's sweeping through evangelicalism today. This is fake righteousness. Fake righteousness is an attempt to please God that disgusts him. It's men going to God on their terms rather than on his terms. And before you believe that fake righteousness is only performed by the unregenerate and the unsaved, let me warn you. Even if you are one of the declared righteous by God, there is likely fake righteousness happening in your life too. You must be careful. The question would be, how eager and fast will you remove and replace fake, phony righteousness with true demonstrations of righteousness? Let's look at that Luke 5, 32 that pairs off with that Luke 16 passage where the Pharisees declare themselves to be righteous. Declaring yourself to be righteous. This is obviously a category one violation. 
These passages remain a great warning to us, the declared righteous. And here's why. I sure hope you understand this. We all need to know that we can be deceived by men. People can and will come in among our congregation who are wolves. And they will seek out whomever they can devour. You know that, right? But as Jesus said to those Pharisees, God knows your heart. Can I just offer this pastoral warning to anyone here among us who might be a wolf? The eyes of the elders will be on you. We will take notice. Don't think that your charade will last forever. It will not. I demand today that if you've been playing the wolf in our congregation, that you repent. Because time and truth have a real funny way of always going hand in hand. And our patience with you will run out, leaving you with great shame and embarrassment. But worse than these, you await a fiery end in hell if you don't repent of fake righteousness. We know the righteous. We do. We know the righteous. We know the demonstrations of righteousness. We have expectations of the behaviors of all those who claim Christ as Lord. Uh, Should we? Should we? Do you? I see your eyes just glaring down on me. I know what you have of me right now. (laughs) Expectations of my behavior. Well, guess what? The Bible says I should have expectations of yours as well. And you of each other. So let's talk about those expectations. Perhaps this is a great place for us to end our time. Pastor Oliver, what are the expectations of behavior that you have for the righteous? That's a great question. And let's end with these. Turn in your Bible to Luke 23, 46. Luke 23, 46. Pastor Mike Riccardi is a friend of mine at Grace Community Church. And he provides us with five great means of sanctification. And these means of sanctification, they always help us with righteousness. So what are my expectations of behavior? I'm going to use Mike's list. These five means of sanctification. Number one, that you read scripture. Number two, that you pray. Number three, that you fellowship. Number four, that when providence of God happens to you, that you understand providence. And number five, that you obey God. These, these five means of sanctification. He says that they will make us grow in Christ-likeness. Basically, these five things will help the righteous demonstrate righteousness. <clears throat> Scripture reading, prayer, fellowship, knowing providence, and obedience. But then in his book on sanctification, he offers a massive clarification. I want you to hold on to those five things, and I want you to think there's something that, that goes underneath all of those five things and actually makes them go, that actually makes them do something. Scripture reading, prayer, what goes underneath all of those things that actually undergirds it and gives it life and makes it grow? You see, these means of sanctification are only finding success in our lives <clears throat> when they are preceding, when preceding them and accompanying them, we Believers, as the author of Hebrews says so well in 12.2, that we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You, you, could, you, you must do these five activities. You've got to have those. But underneath that, you have to be fixing your eyes on Jesus. If you're just doing scripture reading, that's of no benefit to you or anybody else at all. You must, when you read scripture, fix your eyes on Jesus. If you're going to pray, you must fix your eyes on Jesus. Do do you see how this works? Riccardi says, so many texts in the New Testament teach us that the path to Christ-likeness is beholding the glory of the Lord, as in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Riccardi says, beholding is becoming. Do you want to be like Christ? Behold him. Beholding is becoming. I've asked you to turn to Luke 23, 46. Let's see the fruit of beholding from this text. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. You do realize that that word innocent there is our Greek word, dikaios, righteous. Consider this. Here is a centurion 
beholding the face of Christ, and he makes a righteous declaration. His eyes were made to see truth, and what did he do in response? He did righteousness. Consider Simeon, who held the baby Jesus, looked into the face of the righteous one in infant form, and what did he do in response? Simeon did righteousness in response to beholding the Savior. Pastor Mike is just saying to us this, stare into the glory and righteousness of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This needs to be our vision of righteousness for 2020 and all the course of the rest of your lives. Certainly, you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Certainly, you need to confess your sins, repent, and forgive others. Certainly, you need to be mindful of the care of the orphans and the widows, and you need to practice all of the one another's. But what do these matter if your eyes are not fixed on Jesus Christ? Fix your eyes on Him. John MacArthur sums this up best when he says, Now I realize that in my younger years, I didn't really understand that cultivating my love for Christ must take priority over doing things for him. Oh, that you would cultivate a love for Christ. Don't waste your time recognizing and beholding the Time Magazine person of the year. That won't work for you. They'll be having you uh, worship the planet this year. Instead, if we are righteous... We must recognize and fix our eyes on the only righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, we know the scripture says he is our righteousness. So here's the vision. Behold Christ. Know righteousness that it is a declaration and do righteousness out of obedience and love. I hope this vision of righteousness sends you and prepares you well for 2020. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, oh, how we delight in your son and how we don't delight enough in your son. The the marvelous salvation that is afforded through his birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension is incalculable. How are we to wrap our minds and our hearts all around what has been purchased for us who are worms who are set for destruction in fire. But you have done this thing, marvelous in our sight as it is, the regeneration of wicked, sinful people and the declaration on us of righteousness. For this, we are so grateful. We praise you. We marvel at you. And we ask that you abide in us and help us to perform all the righteous deeds that you prepared from us to walk in. Lord, we we ask that all these things would happen in accordance with your will and according to your plan. In Christ's name, amen.